Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is a Renaissance man. He studied yoga, meditation, and massage therapy. He's a songwriter, a poet, a producer, a gardener, a filmmaker, a visual artist, a pianist, and a performer. Today, a gentleman by the name of Sharpie, AKA Ripa, joins me in the podship for an exploration of the supernatural. Enjoy. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Sharpie, welcome to ATBS, the podcast, my friend. Thank you for welcoming me into your podcast community. It's my pleasure. I like to call it the pod ship. It was lots more fun when I was recording face to face and we actually got to be in the pod ship together versus this this virtual from a distance thing but i think it's worked out pretty well it's pretty comfortable to have these conversations with with my guests and i'm super excited to have you on today's episode supernatural with sharpie we have had conversations you and i over the years about a lot of different things and your life and my life and things that are interesting to us how we live our lives. Oftentimes, I think we're, you know, we're perceived by people who think they know us and they know us as, oh, you know, sometimes, you know, my nickname is huge and they know me as that. And why is that? And well, that comes from many years ago. And, and then there's a skiing thing and there's you and Sharpie and Ripa. And, you know, we think we know people. And then I have this experience with you when I came out and visited you last year in California and we spent, you know, 24 hours together. And it was really eye-opening in some ways to me because I got to sit down and talk to you about some things that are really near and dear to your heart, things that you've had in your life for, you know, decades, 30 years and the home that you've lived in and transformed and I was really pretty blown away by, you know, getting to know you in a in a totally different way. So the reason I say that is we think we know people and then, oh, there's more to get to know. So here we are and we're going to dive into the supernatural. And I think you said something to me like this in the precast where you said, Jeff, I think I've been studying and reading and learning a lifetime for this. Indeed. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with anything metaphysical or supernatural. Where did that start in your life? One of the earliest books I read was the Shirley MacLaine book which kind of introduced uh, reincarnation and spirituality to me. And that was early on in my 20s. Before that, I always kind of had a spiritual leaning where I, 
as a young kid, I, I loved the Jesus Christ Superstar album and would play that. And I guess I've always had a sensitivity towards that sort of thing and an interest. I get bored of, of a lot of simple stories, and I like to delve deeper into the deeper meaning of everything. We've experienced that together, right, in a very positive way. How about the outdoors? How about nature? And how does that dovetail? It seems to me that it dovetails together in your life. I know it does in mine. On that level, on just the natural world, it's not so much the intellectual part as just the energy that I get energy from the the outdoors and it gets you out of your routine or your rut. And when you go outside, you feel, I feel rejuvenated and just connected to the natural world, I suppose. Do you feel like we have these, um, this ability to like, if, if I think about a human, I think about myself and, and others, let's say there's a bunch of control knobs, you know, at the bottom, right? Like just, uh, let's say there are 10 control knobs and they are for fine tuning our sensitivities to various things around us, let's say in the universe. I think there are people who are really tuned in and are really using like the fine tune knobs to work their antennae and in some cases don't really even need to. Like you walk outside, I suspect that you feel the energy, as you said, right? Like you and I have hung out in your backyard up up and down the vertical, right? And you can feel the energy of the of the plant and the work that you've done and the cultivation that you've done. But how when I say that, do you think that everybody has those, you know, kind of tuning knobs? Sure. And I think that you can discuss that in terms of meditation. So the common perception of meditation is that you sit in a certain position, you align your spine and you breathe in a certain way and, and that is meditation. But for Zen Buddhists, every moment is a meditation. You can be meditating as you're gardening in your Zen garden. So it's not just a singular practice where you're doing it only when you're going through this procedure, but it's a constant state of mind. Your mind is always trying to connect to the whole and diminish the ego, I suppose, and all the trappings of the ego. I think that dovetails in that's somewhat similar to the tantric yogic philosophy, right? Zen Buddhism and tantric yogic philosophy where, you know, we are part of the whole. We are intrinsically part of the whole. And connected to the whole, yeah. Yeah, and connected to the whole. And we don't need to isolate ourselves or remove ourselves to connect. We are connecting always and always. And I was hoping today we could kind of focus or, or look into the whole dynamic of the idea that two seemingly opposite things can both be true at the same time, which is we are separate, invariably, in separate bodies. Individuals. Individuals, but we're also connected to the whole. So these are separateness and wholeness are opposite, and yet they're both true. And so we have to live somewhere in between those. And I feel like that's part of the human struggle is to get from separateness to wholeness. And I think there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> Let's go right in the deep end. 
Go straight into the end. <laughs> That's the deep end. Point your toes, kids. We're going in. <laughs> so the more obvious and generally held perception is that we're separate, right? We have separate bodies, separate nervous systems, separate bank accounts. And also, you can feel pain for the same event that makes me feel joy. For example, you're, you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, right? I am. You are. So when someone like Troy Polamalu, who is a star linebacker for the Steelers, when he sacks the quarterback, that's pain for the quarterback on the other team and the fans of the other team, but it brings joy to us and joy to Troy. <laughs> and so we're so separate that we can have opposite feelings from the same thing. What brings someone else pain can bring us joy. So that kind of cements the idea that, hey, we are separate. So that one's kind of a, the more obvious one is that we're all separate. Right. And we can see that. We can feel that when, when we're walking around and physically there's clear separation. I'm with you. Right. And as we're in separate bodies, we have separate egos protecting our separateness, right? Mm-hmm. Agreed. The more difficult concept to grasp is the connectedness. I think perhaps a lot of people think, oh, well, that's a holistic feel-good concept that we're all connected, but is it really true? You know, Are we really literally connected? Well, I think there's several levels that we could argue we're connected on, if you would allow me. Uh, for sure. I, I think... That's the whole idea, right? <laughs> that's the whole idea. I think that one must be cautious in, and we talked about this kind of in our precast, that we don't know how many people think what. Right. We can make some assumptions if there are creeping up on or racing towards 8 billion of us on the planet, then we know that there are different beliefs, different perspectives, uh, lots of them. And if everybody ha is, is an individual, they're probably pretty close to 8 billion different perspectives. For the sake of this conversation, we have no idea who believes what. So, yes, we've gone through the separate bodies that we inhabit. And then let's talk about the interconnectedness. I think, you know, you're talking to a guy who who believes and is very comfortable with our our connectedness to everything. And I think you and I are similar in that way. So, you know, we're going to have to tease it out a little bit because otherwise we're probably just preaching to the choir of each other. <laughs> so let's let's dive in. And like you say, the first impression when you think, you know, someone you think, oh, they're they're just caught up in their ego, but you find out later when you get to know them, oh, maybe they really do understand the whole connection thing more as you get to know someone. Well, let's look at it this way. If we're willing to have a conversation with an open mind, if we're willing to accept that I may not believe everything that the person who's speaking believes, but I'm listening with the intent to understand. Now, when we talk to somebody, we learn a lot. We learn a lot more than if we're just trying to hammer some point home because we need to get our point across. And maybe you don't adopt their specific beliefs, but maybe it shifts how you see it. Well, let's hope so. Right? Think about our current events. Think about what's going on in the world today on a number of different fronts. And would it be a good idea if many of us are shifting how we think about certain things? As you like to say, dovetail, I'd like to dovetail that idea into the whole connected idea. So the one way I feel that 
we're all connected is the need for social connection. And that is true. And then we find out now in a quarantine that, and I was reading in Rolling Stone just this ma- magazine just this morning, that the more we're quarantined, the more likely we are to have PTSD. So there's a, a social need to be connected. And like prisoners in isolation even lose regulation of their vital functions because they're so isolated, right? So we have this social need for connection. That's one level. Which is being taxed and tried and tested. Right. And maybe we're evolving and learning as spirits about the necessity of that connection, right? Yeah. Think about walking down the, walking into a, a store or, you know, like the grocery store. I don't, I don't, I keep myself in a pretty good distance, but Think about what it's like to walk around in a group of people that all have masks on and all of a sudden you have to look people in the eye. That's all you can see. I think it's one of the side benefits of people wearing masks is, oh, I'm going to look at you. The only thing I can see on your face are your eyes. And that's the way we connect the best is through our eyes, right? I think we connect very well that way. And I I think in everyday life without masks on, historically, there's a whole lot of not looking somebody in the eye. And I'd actually like to circle back to that idea of looking someone into the eye after we go over some of these other reasons about why we're connected because of the timeline of how we're connected as babies. And then we become more separate as adults. And then maybe later in life, we feel more connected. But I'd like to circle back to that. We have a need for social interaction. Right. The other reason that we're connected is that we need the web of life or the circle of life to survive. So we're all connected through this need to survive. So even if we don't rely directly on insects, we rely on plants that rely on insects. And if insects were to go away, that would affect the web of life and the connection that we all have. So we rely on that connection as well as when we die, our bodies become food or fertilizer for insects and plants. And that's the circle of life. So there's the web of life and the circle of life where we really need each other and all the sentient beings to be there for our survival. So that's kind of like another level that I feel like we're connected. Yeah, I like the web of life and the circle of life. I agree with you completely. So these are more like we need these things for our survival, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily connected physically, but I think there's a couple scientific examples of how we are connected. The first would be that we know now that the world is made up of frequencies or waves instead of just atoms. So for many years, Science explained that, say, this desk is solid and stable because it's built on the fundamental building block of a nucleus of an atom, which is a solid, stable thing. That makes up matter. That makes up our material world, right? But as we got better microscopes and more technology to look closer, we found out that the nucleus of the atom was actually constantly moving, behaving more like a frequency And so we came up with a string theory, which is that everything in the universe is compromised of tiny vibrating fundamental strings or frequencies. So if we're all frequencies, frequencies interact more with each other. So if we're consisting of frequencies, then we are connected because 
waves, say like it's easier to to visualize it through water or through sound waves. When the waves come together, they either enhance or, or cancel each other out, or they interact in some way. So waves are constantly interacting, right? Or and sometimes synchronizing, right? And then we synchronize, and it feels good to harmonize. Oh my goodness, yes! When you're singing, right, and to be in harmony, right? Well, so <laughs> yeah, that last little bit right there is is uh, that could be be a book that could be could be many podcasts the matter versus energy uh, or matter as opposed to energy the theory of relativity versus quantum physics we just went from not from one to the other but but just kind of joined those two right and that's a like that's a huge conundrum for a long time as you pointed out very clearly there was a feeling that the big things behaved one way and the very, very small things behaved a different way. And so you had theory of relativity for the big things, and then you had quantum physics for the small things. And and those things don't actually explain each other very well. It's way over my pay grade, right? It's way over my pay grade as far as knowledge. And But I, I do a lot of reading, as I know you do, and it's fascinating. I'm reading a book, you know, just last night I was reading a paragraph and it just it just freaking blows me away because, you know, there's a piece of equipment that was built in 2015. It measured the waves that came through Earth from two black holes that collided 1.3 billion years ago. And in 2015, the wave was measured. Right, right. And so when we think, oh, I'm just a tiny piece of the universe, I don't really matter, and what I do doesn't have an effect, well, because we're all living in this ocean of frequencies, we all have a chance to make a ripple, and our ripples will carry beyond us. And so as long as you're making ripples in the water, then you're affecting the whole, right? So when people used to say, or there is a phrase, don't make waves, we should absolutely be making waves. <laughs> I'm all for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. I know you are. Let's, let's make our waves. That way they'll be felt. That way they'll be out there. The country and the universe has a big opportunity to make waves coming up soon. In November, right? So, Copy I didn't that. want to go there, but I just to go. Well, it you know it it let's that's another conversation no let's let's make some waves best thing we can do is vote right we vote with our money and we vote and when we go and we pull the levers and we send in our ballots right like so you know we're voting all the time the best thing we can do is vote excellent so i i also thought that there's one other scientific reason why we are physically connected and that's because, apparently, according to science, we're all surrounded by an aura of microbes or a microbial bubble, and that everyone around us is constantly shedding microbial bits into the air. It's kind of gross because when you, you scratch your head, it comes out of your hair and it flies off your hands. Or you, We're constantly shedding microbes, and, and because we have a microbial bubble around us, when we stand near each other, some of the microbes from my body will collide with your body. 
So we're literally, if you get technical and look at it on a really microscopic level, part of me is now part of you, right? Because <laughs> my microbes circling around collided into you and now it's part of you. So I think it's fair to use that as like, hey, we're connected just by standing next to each other. I guess I would put it this way. Our microbiomes are crashing together. There are more microbes on and in us than there are like cells in our body. Like there are more of them by a significant factor of X, significantly more of them than there are of us, which brings me back to the whole interconnectedness. Like we don't operate in isolation. Absolutely. Yeah. We're living a parasitic life. They're living a parasitic life. Like without the microbiome, we don't function. Our immune systems don't function, right? Without our immune systems, we don't do very well. So that kind of reinforces the idea that, yeah, we're not just connected through a need to socialize, but we're connected physically by the microbes that we share. So I feel like that's another, if you're kind of hesitant to believe that we're all connected, well, there's a lot of reasons why we actually are. Agreed. And I think just to put another stitch in that thought, I think I also have read that your microbiome and my microbiome, certainly unique. And certainly when you get into the gut, right, where we now know scientifically that a big chunk of our immune system is in our gut. And it has to do with our microbiome and everything that's going on in there. And we are more similar in microbiome than different. So, you know, when our bugs clash or collide, it's not as though, you know, I've got billions and they're nothing at all like your billions or trillions. Many of them, many of them very, very similar, right? There are certainly differences. We're more alike than different. And that seems to come up way beyond the interconnectedness and the microbiome, right? Like as human beings, regardless of skin color, hair color, eye color, height, background, we're far more similar than we are different. Excellent. Where I'd like to take that idea that we're all connected is to where, let's say hypothetically, because I feel empathy for other sentient beings, I feel connected to them. I decide, okay, I don't want to eat any meat or any fish because I feel empathy for them and I don't want to use my dollar to kill them or consume them. But what if plants are also sentient? So if we don't want to eat any meat or fish, we end up eating mostly plants. Well, if plants are also sentient, that's really problematic for our survival, right? <laughs> if we can't eat meat or fish or plants, then what? I'd like to kind of explore the idea that, oh, okay, not only are animals sentient, which if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you probably already can conceive that animals are sentient, but how about plants? That's less common of a held belief, I feel like. So for the sake of conversation, to pull those two things apart a little bit and then bring them back together. And by that, I mean, let's separate what we eat and don't eat or will or will not eat. Let's separate that for a moment from the 
idea, concept, conversation that plants are sentient beings. Right. And that ties into your other, one of your other podcasts. Yeah. I mean, so many of them seem to tie together, which is really cool. I have a blast with that. You know, here we are recording on, I think the 27th of July and, and yesterday an episode was released. So this, this episode that you and I are recording will be a couple, couple of weeks or a month from now when it gets released. Um, but the episode that's out there right now that this week is, you know, with Garrett Kopp, Birch Boy, Extraordinaire, Mushroom Man, and the episode is Powerful Polypores, The Origins of Ancient Medicine. In the episode that I'm talking about, you know, he talks about the mycelium and the, the interconnectedness of the fungi all over this planet. You know, there's a lot of information out there that I tend to, you know, I mean, I peruse, I'm familiar with where, you know, now we know that one tree can warn another of a some impending danger, whether that be, you know, bacterial or or some attack. We know that they're communicating with each other underground. We know that it can be reasonably well accepted that mycelium are part of that communication and I put that in in air quotes, communication network. And, and I think we'll get to this where there's there seems to be very much a physical connection through mycelium underground, and it could be miles that it spreads. And then I know you and I in our precast were talking about, you know, you brought up the secret life of plants and, you know, way back in the 70s, what was being studied as far as can plants feel. Yes. And this is what I got when I looked up The Secret Life of Plants, which I've read on the internet. And it says it's, it's a book about plants' response to human care and nurturing, their ability to communicate with man, their surprising reaction to music, their lie detection abilities, creative powers. So a lot of things that we don't normally associate with plants and the other day in our precast, I know I went on for 15 minutes giving you a half dozen examples of the scientific experiments, which I, I realize isn't what we're here to do. But I was hoping to just give you a couple minutes please, of the example of the polygraph test that they did, because I just feel like that's so informative if you're not aware of that. Absolutely. So a scientist put a polygraph or a lie detector on a, on a FICA plan in his room because he was curious because the polygraph will measure your energy. And he got a really low reading and he thought, oh, okay, well, there's something there. I'll just leave it there. And when he went to cut the plant, he realized, wow, it's surging and peaking out as I cut it, which was interesting in itself. But the more interesting part was when he went to cut it another time, it surged and peaked before he even touched the plant. So he's, he's realizing, oh, it knows that I'm intending to do this. And he ended up going down the street a mile or two miles and timed it where he intended to cut the plant. And he found that it reacted at the exact same time. And so that from far away, the plant could pick that up. And then also when he was boiling shrimp across the room, it would peak as well. So it, it seems to be picking up on not necessarily a telepathic thing to understand all our thoughts, but at least understanding when we intend to harm it or have 
fear of death. So they are much more sentient than we generally tend to associate with plants. Thank you for sharing that, because I I think one of the challenges here, and I think you're doing a really good job of it, is to present ideas to the best of our ability, you know, back those ideas up, those thoughts with our own experiences, whether that be, you know, in the real world or through what we've read, what we've researched, what we have learned in our lifetimes and try and present it in a way that is digestible. (laughs) We're doing some of the chewing for people so that people can go, huh, interesting. Maybe I'll go read The Secret Life of Plants. Maybe I just hadn't thought of that. Or or at one point I thought of it and that brings it back to my front of mind. So I'll go do something about it. I think that was, that's well done. So now we have some sense and some science, some studies that say that, oh, plants can feel. They have some awareness of, you know, what's going on around them pretty clearly. Where do we go from there? There's one thing I was going to maybe add, which isn't part of the book or, or it isn't anything I've read anywhere. But I do know scientifically that redwoods have the ability to bring more moisture to the outside of their bark when there's a forest fire and in a way to protect themselves from the fire. And we know that's true. You know, because a lot of these scientific books, they give you the the science and the experiment, but they don't necessarily give you a, a hypothesis or a theory. And then the secret life of plants does do that. But my own personal conclusion was, oh, maybe the redwoods can tell that the animals are all either dying or screaming from very far away so that they can prepare their own bark for the, the fire. That's my own personal idea. I don't know if that's actually true, but I thought that was really a compelling idea. Well, so so is it fact that they do what you said? that They absolutely can, yes, bring more moisture into the outside of their bark to protect from a, a forest fire. That's not a conjecture. That's actually part of science. So what we don't know, or maybe you do know this, but that, you know, can they do that in a way quickly enough, like when they start to experience heat right like that would be one thing like oh there's a forest fire it's rolling towards you know they can feel that maybe that's part of it yeah you know maybe or maybe not maybe it's miles away and it's fascinating all of these things that if we look at them in a macro way like let's bring it back to you and i we know that that oh science has determined that there's a there we really do have a sixth sense and they started talking about this might have been on NPR or something like that, where studies show that humans can actually sense energy from other humans, I think they said. Yes. And animals as well. Yeah. Right. And of course, like, you know, guys like you and me, humans, people, lots of people listening are going to be like, well, yeah, we all have had the feeling where, you know, you come into somebody's presence and you're just like, wow. That's not energy I need to be around, right? It's a negative energy. It's a, it's a threatening energy. It's a, something that just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Our senses, we sense that, right? And the opposite is true. We've all, I, I suspect we've all had the experience where you're in somebody's presence and you're like, oh my gosh, like this just feels good to be close by. 
Like this person has really good energy and, and you're drawn, it, it, like there's a certain magnetism to it. Maybe it goes back to that resonance, right? It feels good to harmonize and maybe our body's energies are, are resonating and that feels good versus, oh, we've got different waves going and they're just crashing into each other and I just need to turn around and leave. That doesn't feel good, right? Right, right. And I think we've all had those experiences to some greater or lesser degree, like if we feel like there's a threat or whatever. So it's fascinating when science says, hey, we do have this sixth sense, which we've all felt in our lifetimes, probably, you know, many, many, many times. Science takes a while. Science takes a while to get comfortable with certain things right? or or prove certain things like I don't know that I ever needed proof that I could sense people's energy. Like I didn't need science to tell me that that was possible. <laughs> right? I, like we know that. Like I knew that. I can feel that. And uh, one book that I've read recently by Rupert Sheldrake, The Science Set Free is, is kind of about quantum physics, but it's also about the psychic abilities. And that's kind of like a psychic ability to sense something that we can't see or feel or touch or hear. And there's great examples like the dog knowing when the human parent is arriving home, like they have a way of knowing when you're going to get there. And a very fascinating, and I think he even wrote an entire book about this, that we can sense when people are staring at us from behind to the point where police departments throughout the country have take that into account when they're doing a stakeout. So they try not to stare at the the subject who they're staking out because the person can actually sense that. Yeah. And that even works through the camera lens. If they sit there in their van and they stare at the screen and the camera, that they can even sense that they're staring them at them through the lens. So they actually try not to stare the entire time because they've determined that humans actually have that ability to sense that. So much of what we're saying here and working through, and maybe that's an overstatement that so much of it, but so there are lots of things that we have felt and we can start to pinpoint those, right? Like good energy, bad energy, positive energy, negative energy. We can sense when somebody's staring at us, we turn, we look, somebody's looking at us, those kinds of things. To me, it brings up a question that seems to be fairly regularly up, which is are we becoming more sensitive? Can we become more sensitive? And in many ways, and, and you know, this is dangerous territory to say so many people, but as I said, I referenced the episode that's out today or the 27th of July with Garrett Kopp, and his reference is that he spends his days in the Adirondack forests, right? On the Adirondacks are 600 million acres, he has a lease to sustainably harvest wild mushrooms on 220,000 acres in the Adirondack Park. He's in nature all the time. He feels things. He's in touch. His senses are, are highly tuned. Yes, because he's in a type of meditation by being there in the, in the natural world. It's like a meditation. It, it's calming. It's not distracting your ego. Right. And so we tune in. Yeah. And we're not in a car. We're not in a box. You know, our feet are on the ground. 
his point was, and I think this is a reasonable time, like, and maybe through this whole novel coronavirus COVID-19 experience where, and I, I know there are lots of people that are getting out into nature more than they would if they were working nine to five, five days a week and doing all that, there was already a pretty significant movement towards, hey, let's get ourselves tuned in to the natural world. Let's figure out where we fit, how we fit into the whole circle. And now I think there's an acceleration happening where people are getting more tuned in, I hope. And we can see that in our community because when we go out for a hike now, there's more people out there because the mall is closed. You can't go to the store. I guess they're kind of opening partly now, but over the last few months, you couldn't go out to a restaurant or a mall or a store. So you went out to take a hike. Right. More people, more connectedness, yeah, with nature, which which is back to what you said. Oh, if plants are sentient and we're out in nature, you know, there are things growing all around us. They're alive. Everything, you know, everything's alive and we become more tuned in. Hopefully that then leads to, I have an, an episode that's going to come out on climate change, you know, important distinctions and differences. And, and hopefully what you and I are talking about helps us realize like, oh, we got to get on the stick here. Like we got, we got to participate and before things get too far gone, right? Like we are all interconnected and we're reliant on everything to work and function. We better get on the stick and, and figure out how to do it in homeostasis. Yes. Yes. And so this meditation, this being in nature, or meditating and trying to calm our minds and not be distracted by our computers and our radios and our phones. That's a way to calmness. And in theory, through that calm, you can become more sensitive to the energy. Agreed completely. Therefore, that's part of what our, our work is for inner peace or inner awakening is to find that inner peace and that inner calmness and become more sensitive to energy. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. You know, I practice through yoga and meditation and that's a whole other conversation about, you know, what is yoga, <laughs> the eight limbs of yoga. And one of the concepts is, you know, take what you learn and experience when you're on the mat in a physical asana practice and take it off the mat into your everyday life. Try to apply it. Yeah, it's another way of saying, you know, when you're out hiking in the woods, many more people are out hiking and in contact with Mother Nature. Hmm. Well, when I go home, am I recycling? Am I composting? Can I, is there a way, can I have less impact, carbon footprint, so on and so forth? We become more aware and, and more willing to participate in that process in a positive way. From there, when you were speaking earlier about how the mask forces us to look into the eyes of others, I was saying how I'd like to circle back to that idea. Let's do that. And how a newborn baby is like the ultimate connector in that, you know, as an adult, if you stare at someone, it's impolite. It makes you feel uncomfortable to stare. We're reluctant to create a really deep connection through the eyes as adults, but 
the newborn babies, they just jump right in there and they just <laughs> look in your eyes, right? And you can just like... Yeah, nobody stares at you like a baby. Yeah, right. And you can just connect and connect and connect. And then at some point in the first year or whatever amount of time it is, the ego seems to set in and the baby starts to think, oh, that toy is mine and not yours. I'm separate from you. And it seems like their sense of separateness starts to develop. Certainly more for kids that are told that invisible friend isn't real. And, and you know, this is the way it is. And then reinforcing the, the separateness versus, you know, it depends on the family situation or the kid. But I think it's inevitable. That's part of the human experience is that our ego eventually drops into where we need that to protect our separateness. And the ego is kind of like the enemy in our becoming more sensitive and aware and sentient. So it's kind of the struggle from going from our ego and our separateness back to that original connection that we had as an infant where we didn't have an ego or a sense of separateness. Are you following me there? I am. The thing that comes to my mind is how do we accomplish that? What are the ways, because I can think of a few, what are the ways to accomplish that? Well, when I was taking notes and thinking about this podcast, I came up with the idea that there's kind of two phases for that. The first phase is our intellectual comprehension of how to achieve inner peace. You know, you read the Deepak Chopra books or Eckhart Tolle, we realize, oh, we're all one. We're, we realize we're connected, you know, compassion, not ego, et cetera. And we're like, oh, I get it. I've reached this destination where I'm woke, right? <laughs> yeah. There's like an intellectual comprehension is phase one. And then phase two is, oh, now I got to apply this to my life. And that's the more difficult phase and the humility of, of realizing, oh, we do have this ego and et cetera. So are you feeling me with these two phases that I'm talking about? I am. And so let's talk about the work. So your two phases, again, tell me the first phase. The intellectual phase where you come to understand mentally what it is. So you go, aha, that's what that is. The aha, yes, yes. And then the second phase? So once we become aha and we think, oh, I'm woke, well, the ego tricks us into believing, oh, well, I'm more woke than others. <laughs> uh, I'm better than others. And therefore, I'm judging those who aren't where I'm at. And then you get caught up in trying to preach, oh, well, you guys aren't woke enough. And that's part of our whole political theater now. You, you know, you got the... One side is like, oh, we should all be more connected and woke. And, and, and the other is like, well, you guys are fooling yourselves. You're not really that woke because look at your life, you know. Okay, so let's talk about the non-ordinary states of consciousness. I think that encompasses a pretty broad set of subject matter where if I'm trying to get to or we would like to get to, hey, I get that intellectually that we're all connected, but I'm not there. I have nothing experientially that helps me. Like, okay, I can sit down and I can meditate, but damn, I can only calm my mind for 30 seconds. So I'm a little ways away from feeling that 
you know, stripping of the ego or ego death. Right. And 30 seconds is an eternity when it comes to that kind of thing. Sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of certain people that I know in my life where they're, I'm like, how's your meditation practice? You know, people that I've talked to with some regularity and they're like, well, boy, it's a struggle. It's hard to get to be consistent, make progress, however that's defined. And then there's frustration. So if let's just use that as an example, if meditation is one of the doorways into a feeling an awareness beyond the intellectual where we are feeling it, that interconnectedness, a connection to the whole, to source, to whatever you want to call it, the Akashic record, the zero point field, different terms and, and definitions. And if we're going to try and get there through meditation, a lot of people are just going to be like, I, I can't get there. Or some people are going to get there. So I, can we talk about possible ways to accomplish that? And I'm not, I'll throw it right out there because this is this has come up in other episodes. A holotropic breathwork workshop where through you know, the Stan Groff method of holotropic breathing coupled with meditation, evocative music, and post-experience body work, very specific body work. Oh, well, guess what? You can feel your interconnectedness. Like you can leave your ego behind and have an incredible experience in the non-ordinary state of mind. Right. You can feel like you achieved that destination. Or just, just it, it, achieve doesn't really come into it, but you've had a feeling <laughs> like, oh, wow. I had that feeling. People who listen to the podcast and listen to my episode with Keith as guest host, they know that I've smoked 5-MeO-DMT. I've had a toad experience, which was like the nuclear option of leaving everything that we know behind, stripping everything and connecting to source. Not instantly, but very quickly. Holy shit. Do I think when I sit down to meditate... It doesn't take me very much to put myself in contact with that experience, which I had in May of 2019, and know for myself that I am connected to the universe. So there are a lot of ways to accomplish it. I've just mentioned two. I feel fortunate that I've been able to experience both of those things. But there are a lot of ways in. There are a lot of ways to make that connection, you know, reading, learning, meditating. But I think it's really important. I like to share with listeners, like, look, if you're curious, you know, I'll put I put information in program notes where if you're curious about how to take a step and it might be a baby step or it might be the big step, <laughs> they are out there. They do exist. Options abound for having experiences where we go, oh, wow. Not that I'm more woke than anyone else. And my mother actually asked me that after the, when I explained the toad experience to her, or maybe it was after the sacred Yahe ceremony in Colombia, or, you know, some experience that I've had over the past four years. And she said, do you feel like, because you've had this experience, do you somehow feel superior? And you mentioned it earlier, right? Like, am I more woke than the next person? And I don't think of it that way. I actually think that there's 
added empathy and understanding. So we determined that we can get there and that there's methods to get there to have that feeling. Personally, I can say unequivocally, yes. So that then the struggle, and, and this is re- part of Buddhism, is that you can reach these states of mind, but then the next morning when you get up, your ego takes over again, and you're like, well, I got to take care of all the material things, and I need to accumulate resources for my body and my family, which are separate from other families. And so the ego kind of invariably takes over at some point after we have that experience. So part of the goal of achieving this uh, connection or, or part of the Buddhist way is to try to diminish the ego. And you have to be humble enough to acknowledge, well, yeah, I, I am able to maybe reach this connected feeling, but I also have an ego which puts my interests above others, which ties into the whole needing to have sentient beings for them to die for us to survive. So we need to put our interests in front of others. So our ego invariably reemerges after that feeling. And part of the struggle is to, uh, as one of my favorite authors, Ram Das, puts it, the idea isn't to defeat the ego, but to diminish it. It'll always be there. And he, he says he lives in Marin County. And he's like, I love my hot tub with a view in Marin. And I acknowledge that my ego wants that, but I'm instead of trying to deny that that exists, I just want to have tea with it, like acknowledging the ego and just calmly having tea with the ego. And I think, and I don't know this for sure, I'm familiar with Ram Das. For me, my practice is the practice of non dual tantric yogic philosophy. And in some ways, what it states or what it represents is that the human experience is not a problem to be solved or something that we just have to deal with so that we can get to something bigger and better and more connected. That I am not separate and that every day I'm going to live a life of interconnectedness. And it's not a battle. It's non-dual. And... You know, tantric yogic philosophy, you got to, you know, there's plenty of information out there on it. I actually a little less than I'd like to see, but that's changing because there are scholars who are transcribing and digging and, and finding more and more information all the time. That non dual tantric yogic philosophy is really, really powerful to me as it relates to what you just said, where it's not a struggle. Like, yes, there's an ego. Yes, I participate in the world around me. I know I need to earn a living so that I can bring the best version of myself to the party of life every day. It doesn't separate out and say, well, you can't have the hot tub if you're actually going to be a participant in the, in the interconnected world. Doesn't mean you have to go without. Right. So it's fascinating. I, I think there are a lot of ways to go. I think in the program notes, there'll be references. I mean, Ram Das is wonderful wonderful author and non-dual yogic tantric yogic philosophy is well worth a look and you know you mentioned another author and I'm, I'm sorry I'll put it in the program notes Rupert Rupert somebody 
Maybe it was Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah, Rupert Sheldrake. So all of those things will be in the program notes. And again, my hope with ATBS, the podcast is, look, this is for the curious and open-minded. So if you hear something here, you know, go and have a look, have a read, contemplate, you know, consider a a non-ordinary state of consciousness for yourself if it's interesting. If it's not, you know, that's fine too. A lot of ways to skin the cat, a lot of things to learn. And so I know you like to connect one podcast to your other podcasts as in the commonality. For this conversation, the idea that through meditation, we become more calm and more aware and more sensitive. And that like Ram Dass says, you can't defeat the ego, but you can diminish it. So I was wondering how that would tie into your experience in South America, where if we're trying to reduce the ego or our sense of separateness and to achieve more harmony and connectedness, how that device that measured negative electromagnetic fields is maybe a measure of your work on your inner peace or inner awakening and how you started out with a a giant score of negative electromagnetic fields and then you did all that inner work and you had a a negative uh, or a very low score. I was hoping you could kind of share something about that. Yeah, interesting. I I think it's a... First of all, what is that device or or what... Yeah, first of all, what is that device? Well, for the listener, and and I can't remember if Keith and I in episodes one and two. I think it was episode two. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how deeply we went into that, but you know what you're referring to is an experience I had a couple of years ago, where most of my listeners know that I'm a cancer thriver, and a couple of years ago I found myself in in Colombia. And that was through connection with some really, really great people in my life, friends that I've known a long, long time, and other people who are seeking health and wellness and putting themselves out there in the world. And so I found myself in Colombia, and it ended up being a two-part piece. I went there to have an experience with Francisco, you know, who you're referring to these machines. Well, he builds them and his people build them and and people have said, well, why don't we have them in this country? And that that's a whole nother ball of wax. He's not trying to solve the, the United States challenges with cancer. He's trying to help people in his neighborhood and in Colombia. And our FDA doesn't really impact him in that way. So I went there. And here's a guy who is with a collection of really interesting and unique people. He's building his own computers. He's building his own contraptions and methods for not only measuring electromagnetic activity in your body, but then influencing it and and changing it and doing that through a system, a series of, you know, computers, computer software program, and then physically receivers and transducers that are on your body and changing your electromagnetic field. And I think there's plenty of research out there now in the cancer world where some of these things, not exactly what he's doing, but some other systems are proving to be very effective at reducing tumor size. And everybody can go do their own research on that. You know, I'm not sitting here. I'm not a doctor. I'm not suggesting anybody needs to follow my path. But I went through this series of many, many days over almost four weeks where I was in and having you know, anywhere from two to seven hours in a day 
where I was having these electromagnetic frequencies, I think three or four different ones, you know, pulsing through my body in an effort to change my electromagnetic field or the what I think he called the negative electromagnetic field. And that's where, you know, my number was very high when I arrived and ideally at zero. His theory being that like at infancy, it's zero and that's really good. And I stayed, I was like, well, if zero is the goal, then I'm your, you know, I'm your guy. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And I stayed for 28 days and did 19 sessions and, you know, went from 187 as a reading to 15 and zero is the goal. Which is awesome. Yeah. Which is awesome. Right. So, and I, and I've, I felt fantastic and I gave myself over to him, you know, a hundred percent like, okay, I don't speak a whole lot of Spanish. They don't speak a whole lot of English. And, you know, fortunately I had some, you know, a little bit of, you know, interpret interpreters and help, but not a lot, but I could understand the number, like, you know, in the thumbs up sign, like we're going in the right direction. At the same time, I was meditating. I was practicing yoga. I was exercising. I was eating a clean diet. And along the way, partway through that experience with Francisco, I was introduced to a shaman. And in Colombia, Taita is the name. And I ended up spending, you know, the better part of a week, really five days with Taita and his wife and some other really, really, really spectacular people. That's a long, long story, but, you know, I went through a lot of ceremony and a lot of ritual and a lot of healing, and I gave myself over to that experience 100% too. The combination of the two was incredibly powerful. I think they complemented each other. My frame of mind was really, really clear. Like I, I was very clear of mind. I didn't have anything else that I needed to worry about. I was there. I had really good people that opened themselves up to me and allowed me to open myself up to them. And I've said to many people, like my Colombian family is like nothing I've ever experienced. They took me in, they welcomed me. It was so warm, so inviting. It was like this incredibly deep, heartfelt hug from a community of people that are now, I consider to be very dear friends of mine. And the combination of things was just incredibly powerful. So yeah, do I think that my mindset helped? Yes. So do I think I had influence on, you know, how well all of that worked for me? Yes. Do I think that the electromagnetic work benefited the shamanic work? Yes. And vice versa? Yes. And that ties into our current conversation. So would you feel after this process where your score was much lower for the negative electromagnetic fields, at that point, did you feel more connected to other people and more sensitive to energy as we were talking about. Yes. Excellent. You know, and did I feel differently to others? And I think I've shared this before. I walked into my house after being gone for almost 30 days and our daughter Savannah and my wife Fiona were there. I knocked on the door because the door was locked or whatever, and it was evening or something. And I walked in I gave them both hugs and I wasn't a few steps inside the door before both of them looked at me and one of them said, wow, do you feel different? Yeah, they could pick up on it. Oh, 
Absolutely. Right. Like, wow, do you feel different? You look healthy. You feel healthy. Damn. What the heck did you get up to down there? <laughs> they didn't necessarily know all that I'd gotten up to while I was in Columbia. But yes, I think it all plays together. And I think I, through that experience, I mean, I can call on that experience. I can find myself back there. I can, I can conjure that. I, it's part of my, you know, it's part of who I am. And I draw on it regularly. And I'd like to go back. So that state of energy and state of mind that you achieved in theory and in an application in this case gives you more of an ability to sense things that some would characterize as psychic abilities, that it's a psychic ability to sense when someone's looking at you from behind and that we all have these psychic abilities, but if we do this inner work and this inner awakening, that we actually improve that ability. We strengthen the muscle. We strengthen the muscle of the psychic ability, and the ego desiring these psychic abilities is actually the opposite effect. The more we desire this ability, the more elusive it is. The more we're willing to let go of the ego and be like, okay, I'm, I'm not determined to be of that frame of mind and I'm willing to let that go and be more connected. The more we can just let go, the more we can have this ability to sense stuff, which can be characterized as a psychic ability. I'd like to say that I, I think there's a fair amount of science behind this in that when we meditate, when we find ourselves through whatever method in a non-ordinary state of consciousness. And I love the phrase, and I'm pretty sure Stan Groff coined that phrase, but it does apply to a lot of different things. If you're in a deeply meditative state, you're in a, what would be, I think you could consider it to be a non-ordinary state. If you're having a psilocybin, you know, deep psilocybin experience, you know, you're experiencing a non-ordinary state of consciousness. Right. Same with LSD, same with holotropic breath work. And I think it was in episode two of your thriving podcast with Keith that you mentioned when you started talking about your shaman from South America that, oh, there's a good chance he'll call in the next 24 hours because he isn't away with that. And being a connected, calm, meditative, spiritual guy, he is more able to sense what's going on beyond his five senses, thousands of miles away in Utah, where you are, that you're thinking of him, he can pick that up. And I also, in reading Ram Das, he had that experience where he went to India to try and find a guru and to find out more about all these things. And for years, he couldn't really find that guy. And at some point, he climbed way up into the Himalayas to find a, a guru who was like a Buddhist guy who's just meditating all the time and way up in the high altitudes. And when he got there, the, the guru was like, oh, yeah, I was expecting you. <laughs> he already knew he was coming. Right. And then he made a comment about ram Dass's, whether it was a cousin or some relative back in the states and about their medical condition 
And he was like, well, how do you know about that? Well, it, later on, he found out that what the shaman or the guru said was actually true. So somehow he knew not only that Ram Dass was coming, but something about one of his relatives thousands of miles away. So somehow this state of mind gives you what would be characterized as a psychic ability to be sensitive to things beyond our normal ability. Right. And can be defined a lot of different ways. I actually, I'm going to pull something up here. I don't usually do this when I'm on podcast, but I'm going to do this right now. Before we got on, because you had said a couple of different times in our precasts and our conversations that I think you said, I'd like to explore the supernatural. As I'm wont to do, I decided I would just look up the definition, you know, a couple hours ago. I think it's Webster's defines it as of a manifestation or event attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. One definition attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding. But then here you and I are, and we're talking about some things where, depending on how you define that, if the you know guru high in the Himalayas has the ability to sense, have an awareness, what have you, you can take that all the way back to your observation on the secret lives of plants and the person who was doing the testing who went two miles down the street and the plant had the same reaction from a distance. Incredible. Plant had the same awareness from miles away. Well, if we're talking about the quanta or the quantum field, a mile or a million really doesn't matter. It doesn't. Yeah. He would go really far away and it would be the same. So, you know, the guru in the mountains or, you know, Taita in Colombia and me in, you know, Utah, that distance is, you know, it's kind of irrelevant. It could be a mile, it could be 5,000 and it doesn't matter, but our brains have a hard time getting around that. <laughs> Many a brain have a hard time getting around that. The tendency for most people, and it's part of our human nature, it would seem, is to be like, well, even if that's possible, I am probably not capable of it. Whoever is capable of that is out there. And if, if it's God, then it's out there somewhere instead of inside of me. Let's bring that right back to the infant. The infant who stares versus the three-year-old or five-year-old who understands that, oh, staring's not like I shouldn't be staring. Do we just get that? you know, programmed out of us or programmed into us that, well, look, you got to have gone to a certain school or you have to have a certain title or something to then be acknowledged as being able to have that experience. And so with, say, Jesus, if he heals somebody, well, that's for Jesus. That's not for me. I don't have that ability. He has that ability and he's the messenger of God, not me. So there's this tendency, the ego wants to put it out there somewhere instead of inside of ourselves. Yeah. Do we not want to take responsibility? And it's kind of scary to think, oh, you know, I can see 
dead people or, you know, like we don't want to. Well, or I could heal myself. Or I could heal myself. Yes. Yes. Oh, shit. Wait a second. I actually could heal myself. That's scary shit. Like that, that will scare the shit out of some people. Right. And so our egos, which are the protectors of our separateness, want to externalize that ability that's for jesus that's for god or muhammad or whoever you got well or or sharpie that's for the people in the white coats <laughs> or the people in the white coats yeah it could be oh the people in the white coats with the name tags on they're the ones that are going to solve my problem and when we did the precast you came up with the term which i i'm not sure if i had heard before or not but you said the deification of people where we put those that are capable of any kind of a psychic ability or transcendent thing or healing themselves, they're out there somewhere, not inside me. Whereas in my experience, I found it very surprising when you get to talking to someone and you really go deep with conversation, how many people are open to the idea of, well, God is also inside of me or inside of everything, not just God is out there. Well, yeah. So here we are with with a whole bunch of things on our plate. <laughs> Not surprising. There's all but... kinds of paths we can take from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could spend another couple hours. Yeah. We could just wander around, which is fine. So let's say it's kind of the guru principle where somebody's like, I forget who it is that says, uh, I am not your guru. But you know, we, we tend to put people on pedestals, right? So it's the doctor, it's the guru, it's the, uh, you, you name it, it could be anything, right? It's the, it's the athlete, the incredible athlete where we put these people up on pedestals. Right. Only he can jump that far, ski that fast or whatever. Right. Right. Versus me. Oh, well, you know, I'm actually capable of anything. So I am the guru. I am my guru. A non-dual tantric yogic philosophy, dude, you're your own fucking guru. Don't be looking at up front for someone to lead the way. You can learn, you can, you know, listen, you can integrate all in an effort to be your own guru. With a couple of the most famous and popular gurus or sages, both Jesus and Muhammad tried to proclaim, I am not God. I am a messenger of God. And, you know, don't revere me as the actual God. Don't put me in a pedestal. I'm the messenger of God. But our egos don't want to hear that. They want to hear, oh, my God, you're the guy. We have a religious hierarchy of who's closer to God. And then the top guy, we like to put him in giant stone castles or churches. We like to put him in capes with jewels and golden hats and make them the God. Whereas their whole message was, no, don't, don't do that to me. I'm the messenger. So there's that dynamic. And I think that Pope Francis is great in the sense that he's kind of shunned all the trappings of this hierarchy, the you know, the cape and the fancy clothes and all that stuff. And, and he's more into the humble teachings of Jesus instead of becoming the deity that we 
that we honor, right? He's more into cleaning the feet of the poor and and following the the message of Jesus instead of trying to be like, oh, I'm the I'm the main guy, right? So that's kind of a what I've enjoyed about Pope Francis, even though I'm not a Catholic. I appreciate that aspect of him. Another thing about God being somewhere out there, I just recently saw an interview with John Anderson, the singer from the rock band Yes. And he was describing about how when he goes to the city, and he's he's kind of a spiritual guy, he believes in everything is connected. And, and he was going to the city and he was recognizing the disparity in the neighborhoods. And wow, you know, how fortunate we are, are is very different. And when he saw the homeless guy in the street, he saw, said, thought to himself, oh, maybe that's God. Maybe the homeless guy is God. Because he's in all of us. The homeless guy isn't, you know, have all the trappings of the ego. He doesn't have all the, the material things. So I thought that was kind of interesting that that was one way of looking at it. Whatever that God energy or the the spiritual energy, it runs through all of us is kind of that perception. Yeah. And we are we. You are me. I am you. We are we. Right. Like we're all interconnected. Kind of goes back to that. Right. So, yes, we all embody all of it. Everything. Like I'm reading, I'm reading a book. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to see if I can pull it up since we're we're kind of going for it here. There's a phrase that was like, yeah, even a guy like Stephen Hawking couldn't get his head around this. One by one, the quantum revolution that exploded in Einstein's lifetime took away every reliable bit of the world out there. Intellectually, the consequences were devastating. There's a famous aphorism uttered by astronomer and physicist Sir Arthur Eddington as he contemplated the peculiarities of the quantum domain, something unknown is doing we don't know what. These words are generally taken as a quip from a bygone era. Eddington, who offered some of the first proof that the theory of relativity actually matched reality, lived at a time before physics aimed its sights at a total explanation of the cosmos, a theory of everything, which some believe is just around the corner. But the quip, something Eddington had a knack for, should be taken seriously. Even a confident mind like Stephen Hawking's has more or less given up on the theory of everything, settling for a patchwork of smaller theories that will serve to explain how local aspects of reality work, not the whole. But can it really be true that reality is so mysterious that all of us have been mistaken about it since we were born? The idea of, am I living a dream or am I dreaming a life? Is just my being and seeing and looking is bringing the universe to life. If I wasn't seeing it, if we weren't seeing it and experiencing it through our, you know, through our retina and our prefrontal cortex and all of the shit that goes on to, you know, as I look out the window and identify things as what I think they are in my quote-unquote reality. And they're only existing because we're observing them. Right. That's part of the quantum physics theory. Yeah. Yeah. And you started way back when talking about matter versus waves. 
when, you know, photons and neutrons or whatever are being, you know, not being observed, they're acting like waves. And as soon as the scientist turns his attention and begins to observe, they act like matter. That's right. So the idea is that scientifically, this desk in front of me isn't really there. It's only there because I observe it or I feel it, and then it becomes real. And because when we look at the nucleus of the atom and we realize, oh, it's not a solid, stable thing that's a building block for materialism. No, it's a, a moving, fluctuating thing. Right. It's energy. It's energy. Since it's not really there, perhaps our entire reality is projected from our consciousness. And perhaps if we're all part of one universal consciousness, each of our realities is just a separate manifestation of that universal consciousness. Are you still with me now? <laughs> I got a big smile on my face now. <laughs> Boom. Should we end it on that or are we still going? <laughs> what else can you say, Sharpie? I mean, if one was going to finish, that's, you know, that's the microphone drop. Okay, fair enough. So we got there. Okay. I think it's worth trying to tie some things back together. For the listeners, again... I like to put things into this perspective, or at least offer this up. In the program notes for this episode, I will put, and, and Sharpie, I hope that you'll assist me with this. Let's put references where people can go and you know some of the things that you've referred to, some of the things that I've referred to, and let's have a solid reference list for people to go and do their own you know, head scratching, you know, their own exploration, It'll probably be pretty extensive just because of the subject matter that we've covered. You know, for the listeners, take it with a grain of salt, right? We're not telling you that anything is or isn't or that you have to follow any path, mine or Sharpie's or anybody else's. Clearly, in a conversation like this, hopefully we've opened some doors and, <laughs> and contemplated some fascinating content. Right. And we're not pretending to be the authority or of any of this. Right. We're students. We're just simply exploring these ideas, ideas that we've gathered throughout our lives from other sources. You're a student of the game of life. Like, you know, you've done a tremendous amount of research. You've lived a life that is, you know, exploratory and inclusive and, and you figure things out and you don't take things at face value just because somebody said it. I think I fall into a similar category. And so, right, we're not presenting ourselves as the authorities, but as people who are curious and hopefully we've piqued some interest. Yeah, Sharpie, thank you for joining me on ATBS, the podcast. I love the fact that, uh, you know, we talk about this and then, yeah, let's let's dive in. And so thank you for spending time. Thank you, my friend. I have said this to many people, Sharpie. You're the first and only person who has said, Jeff, I'd really rather not record next week. I'd like another week to prepare. And so I thank you for giving this the consideration that you felt it deserved, taking your time, putting your things together, 
so that we could have a conversation as fun and as enjoyable and hopefully as informative as this. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. I enjoyed doing it. I feel like it helped me sort out these ideas in my own mind and help organize those thoughts. I love it. I love it. That was quite a trip into and around many things supernatural. Thank you, Sharpie, and thank you to the ATBS tribe. As always, the program notes will be full of references for you to explore. Thanks for listening and sharing us with friends. And I hope you'll join me next week on ATBS, the podcast. Peace.